0: I mean, to my mind, the advent of social media is as big a breakthrough for evidence in legal proceedings as fingerprinting or the development of DNA in terms of its transformative impact.
1: Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments false indictments.
0: Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished.
2: Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise.
3: Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van den Berg. And I'm Janet Anderson. And this podcast is being supported by justiceinfo.net. And today we tackle social media evidence in war crimes trials and then specifically domestic war crimes trials. There, this has become a
4: really big issue, especially because of the conflicts in Syria and Iraq. We know that these conflicts have been really heavily documented and there's a ton of material out there.
3: Yeah, and they've also led to huge influxes of refugees uh, to Europe. Many of the asylum seekers that come in uh, to European countries are sometimes victims, sometimes witnesses and even perpetrators of atrocities. So we've seen the change across Europe with these war crimes units, which
4: have been around for a while. Previously, we've seen them looking at odd individual cases like something from Rwanda or Ethiopia. And now we can see them becoming much more substantial entities. And some of them are even Investigating really broadly these conflicts. And of course, the crimes that they're dealing with, Um, they're trying to find people who are most responsible for genocide, for war crimes, for crimes against humanity. So they're hugely important crimes, particularly those that have been committed in places like Syria and Iraq. And
3: these uh, domestic authorities have to find ways to effectively collect, process, analyse and share uh, what we call user generated data like photos on Facebook or videos on YouTube.
4: Yeah, that's what the investigators have to do. And then because we've got such a big rise in the number of trials, we have the judges also have to learn how to assess this kind of digital evidence.
3: So in this podcast, we're going to jump a bit around looking at Germany, looking at the Netherlands, but also Finland, Sweden, uh, possibly other European countries. And let's not forget the UK.
4: Sorry, um, Brexit means that we're no longer part of Europe, but maybe we can uh, also have a check in there.
3: So joining us uh, for today talking about social media evidence are Yvonne McDermott-Reese, Professor of Law at the Hillary Rodham Clinton School of Law at the University of Swansea. Hi, Yvonne. Hello, thanks for having me. And we've also
4: got Carolina Aksamitovska, I hope that I'm saying that right, also in Swansea where she's doing her PhD. Hi, Carolina. Yes, that's correct. Hello. So Carolina, you've particularly been looking into this issue, how domestic war crimes prosecutors are dealing with social media evidence. And I know that you've got a paper just out about this. It's up at the Journal for International Criminal Justice, and we're going to put a link to it up in the show notes. So tell us, how are prosecutors actually getting this evidence to start with? Are they like you know, keyboard warriors sitting behind their desks, scanning the internet to see what everybody's
1: saying? Is that where they're getting it from? So, in the vast majority of the cases, these uh, types of investigations are opened on the basis of the information provided by the immigration authorities. And I think it is important to stress that war crimes units, um, the specialist units that are looking into um, alleged violations of international criminal law, are established not only uh, within the prosecution services, but also within immigration, also within police uh, or judiciary. So, on the basis of information that is provided by the asylum authorities, An investigation might start, um, especially if the asylum authorities become aware of um, disturbing content such as uh, decapitation videos, uh, for example, on the Facebook profiles of the asylum seekers or on Twitter uh, or even in the recent case uh, before the uh, Hague District Court, uh, several Instagram accounts were also analyzed. So, uh, of course, also YouTube as well. So once the authorities become aware of some kind of um, disturbing content, they search for the same kind of content on other social media platforms um, and try to find out where it originates from. So are
4: you saying that they kind of grab hold of these phones at when people arrive in the country or, or say, yeah, you want to come and visit here or you want to live here? We've got the right then to look at your phones and your computers. Is that how it works?
1: Uh, It seems that it is mostly in the cases when the asylum seeker does not have a valid passport. So when they are not sure where a person originates from or whether they are really curious about what route they took to, for example, Germany or to the Netherlands, I think it is quite common to have a look at the phone. But these phones, I think it's important to stress. Also, they're not confiscated. They're just um, taken. A report is generated and then they get them back
4: and then they follow the trail and then they do more investigation when they find the the origin the first bit of evidence
1: Yes, so uh, they will want to see whether this photo originates from that phone, whether it was uploaded by the accused, uh, whether it was retweeted, whether, you know, to what extent the accused made an effort to disseminate it as widely as possible. It is also something that the court seemed to pay particular attention to in their assessment uh, of the scale of the degrading treatment that took place. So if the accused made an effort, made a particular effort to dis- disseminate it to a large audience, this is something that is also very often mentioned in these judgments. It is more likely that the court will find a degrading and humiliating treatment as uh, something that continues. And Yvonne, just if we circle back a bit, this
3: kind of evidence where we're talking about photos on phones, videos on phones, Facebook posts, can prosecutors already use this in trials? Is it kind of standard in courts, not only in war crimes cases, but in other cases as
0: well? Absolutely. I mean... Um, Just for one example of social media evidence in court, you just have to look at the United States and the recent conviction of the police officer who murdered George Floyd to see the impact of this kind of evidence in practice. I mean, to my mind, the advent of social media is as big a breakthrough for evidence in legal proceedings as fingerprinting or the development of DNA in terms of its transformative impact. You see it all the time, you know, um, it's almost an instinctive reaction now when people see a crime happening or see some other notable incident happening on the streets. They pull out their mobile phones and they record it. And what that means for courts is that they're no longer solely relying on witness testimony, which does have its frailties. People misremember, they forget details, they can be inconsistent. And in many of these cases, as Carolina said, it's, it's the perpetrators themselves who are recording and sharing evidence of their own wrongdoing. I think what's unique to the context of prosecuting international crimes and what makes it different to domestic prosecutions of so-called ordinary crimes is that the person who recorded the video or took the image and posted it online is, is often unknown or is unable to come and testify. And so that's slightly one facet that's slightly different in this context.
4: I, Carolina, I followed a case here in the Netherlands um, just recently. It was of a Syrian asylum seeker and the evidence against him, which actually led to um, a guilty verdict in the end, was a photo of him with his foot on a dead body. Um, but it was assessed by the Netherlands Forensic Institute, which is, um, I think, government-related. I mean, they're, they're employed specialists there. Is that the same as what happens in other countries? Do you have this kind of cadre of independent specialists um, connected to, to government, to
1: prosecution authorities who are looking at things? Who's doing the work? Certainly the older war crimes units. So the ones that have been operating since the ratification and the implementation of the Rome Statute in national legislation uh, have these strong cooperation networks, not only with each other, but also domestically with forensic experts at home who can also be associated um, with forensic institutes. Um, But it's also something that I I advise the newly established war crimes units to do, that it is important to establish these cooperation networks with scientists, with forensic institutes. It doesn't have to be one specific one. Like you mentioned, the Netherlands is the Netherlands Forensic Institute. In Sweden, it's the National Forensic Center. It can be a number of different forensic centers. I realize that not every state that wants to establish a war crimes unit will immediately establish such a big institution, big governmental institution. But it is really helpful especially when these um, forensic centres are able to assist the judges, especially in the assessment of evidence, uh, with regard to its authenticity and reliability.
3: Yvonne, when we look at, um, Carolina said there already is a lot of uh, cooperation between uh war crimes units, both uh, from the police side and from the prosecution side. Are we seeing kind of best practices emerging and kind of a consensus on how to deal with this very specific
0: kind of social media evidence? That's a great question. Um, You know, Carolina's article forms part of a special issue of the Journal of International Criminal Justice that I've co-edited with Alexa Koenig, uh, Dara Murray and Emma Irving. And in our introduction, we actually make this point. We argue that. The use of digital technologies to support international criminal investigations started off as a, a little bit of a, a wild west <laughs> for want of a better term you know there was a lot of experimentation going around about using tools and methods that had been developed in other contexts and seeing you know what might happen could we use it in this context but um, i think by now we're definitely witnessing professionalization of practice. And you can see this in, for example, emergence of common standards for digital open source investigations. Um, we had the Berkeley Protocol, which was released late last year, um, which is exactly about that common standards for and methodologies for doing this kind of work. And um, we're seeing a lot of training uh, resources coming on stream, training courses and, and workshops, the incorporation of these techniques into university, curriculum. So I think all of that is moving towards a uh, professionalisation of practice. Um, and the literature too, uh, we talked about this a bit in our introduction, I guess it follows kind of the same arc as literature on international criminal justice generally, um, what Karsten Stan has called from faith to facts, you know, uh, it started off as this really quite excited and, you know, maybe a bit idealistic, wow, what might happen if we could use this stuff in court? Uh, and we, we particularly saw this around the Alwar Valley arrest warrant in the ICC. But now that this potential has become a reality we see scholarly attention turn to a more in-depth analysis and perhaps more of a critique towards this um, digital turn in international criminal investigations, thinking about, OK, there are great benefits to this, but what are the pitfalls? Um, what are the things we might be missing with this?
3: I'm going to slightly stephapedia you on the Albert Fally case for our listeners. Uh, we mentioned it also on our uh, podcast with the Prosecutor Fatou Bensouda, but this is uh, the case of a Libyan commander general who was uh, indicted mostly based on, I think, YouTube or Facebook videos of him um, calling for certain actions. So this is one of the ICC cases that's almost entirely based on social media evidence so that we can li- will link to the case in-, in our show notes.
4: And I'm really excited that Yvonne's talking about all of these courses. Um, I was on one recently based on the... Berkeley Protocol, which taught me a lot more about investigating uh, digitally and what could be done and what couldn't. I wouldn't describe myself as a professional in this area. I'm just really interested. But um, well, maybe talking about the beginnings of it and a bit of the, the Wild West. I don't know whether that's a good enough connection or not, but I think of the Bellingcat guys as kind of representing maybe the the people who've tried to push the boundaries on this. So maybe we could just talk about a recent project that you did, uh, Yvonne, together with GLAN, the Global Legal Action Network, who do a lot of strategic litigation together with Bellingcat, who do this investigation and analysis of social media videos and often for you know, specific reasons to challenge official narratives um, to tell truth about what's actually happened with things like war crimes. And you set up a mock trial recently, or maybe a mock hearing would be a better way of describing it, with lawyers, real lawyers, QCs, Queen's counsels and a judge to see whether British courts, or maybe it was English courts, I'm not too sure, could actually accept the evidence of experts like Bellingcat, their kinds of analyses, and see whether that could be used for potentially for a trial. So could you tell us a
0: bit more about the setup? Sure. Yeah. So um, just by way of background, so GLAN do a lot of work on accountability for breaches of international law um, in the Yemen conflict, amongst many others. But through this work in Yemen, um, they started to get interested in preserving relevant social media evidence and they worked with Bell and in coming up with a methodology for doing this. Um, But one thing that uh, the lawyers at GLAN and and myself got asked all the time was what would happen in England and Wales? And the short answer was, we don't know, (laughs) because, as you know, we have a common law system here in England and Wales. So it's not a free proof approach like on the continent. Here, the judge has a wide power to exclude evidence if admitting it would lead to unfairness. Because we haven't had cases like the ones that Carolina discusses in her article here to date, we thought that the best way to test this out would be to devise this mock admissibility hearing. Uh, and we also thought it would be a really interesting way to test the methodology that Glan and Bellingcat had devised. So to see well, what are the weak points here in terms of trying to get this evidence admitted in court um, and what kind of challenges lawyers might raise to it. So we devised this exercise, which, as you say, was presided over by a judge, Judge Joanna Coroner, um, who was just amazing, and four real-life barristers um, with two witnesses testifying on behalf of the prosecution in this fictional case. So the clip that we used in the exercise, uh, and the whole exercise is online, I'm sure you'll Link to it in the show notes. But uh, the clip was a real piece of footage from Yemen and had been found on Twitter and had been verified by Bell and Cat. But absolutely everything else, the defendant, the fictional case that we devised, was was completely fictional. So let's uh, listen to
4: a bit now. I mean, it's, you know, hours and hours long, so we're not going to play, obviously, a lot of it. But let's listen to a bit now of Andrew Cayley. He was on the challenging side, let's say the defence side in this case, saying, you know, can we really trust this evidence? He's a Queen's counsel himself. I mean, we know him from other trials. He's a he's a big figure in, in our world. And he was really trying to undermine the expert report by the expert from Bellingcat, who I, I think is Nick
2: Waters. Now, you also understand that you're obliged to disclose any material which would actually undermine the reliability or credibility of your report. Yes. And, and you've done that, Yes. Yeah? So, I mean, any material that there was... You've disclosed that. Well, there was none, essentially. Yes. Now, would you accept that if the evidential material or part of it on which you relied to produce your report was flawed, your report would be flawed as well, wouldn't it? Uh, Potentially, yes.
0: Yeah. um, So I think you've chosen a really important clip here because... I think some people who don't have a lot of knowledge about legal practice think that the role of the expert is kind of like a hired gun, you know, for whichever party instructed them. But what the expert's duty, of course, is to the court and the court alone, and they have a duty to disclose anything that might undermine their own conclusions. And that's really what Andrew was pointing at in this clip. I would say as an aside that the entire recording of the hearing is just an absolute masterclass in cross-examination and advocacy from all four lawyers who, who were involved. So I think it's worth listening listen on that basis alone. But anyway, the defence line of attack had two Strands, really. Um, the first was that the video itself was inadmissible because it was lacking in authenticity and reliability. And the second was that the report of the expert, that is Nick Waters from Bell and Cat, was also inadmissible. Um, so, on the first point, they had some really great arguments actually because the creator of the video was unknown, and <clears throat> in fact, the video had clearly been edited because there were two segments which had apparently been spliced together. So the defence argued, well, you know, what are we not seeing here? Is there a chance that it's been manipulated in some way to remove some exonerating evidence? Um, And then because it had been posted to Twitter... The, what we call the metadata, the sort of um, information about the file, the digital fingerprint, um, if you will, had been stripped from the video. And that's common with social media platforms. When you upload a video, it strips that metadata. So there was a lot of stuff missing around the video. Um, the defence also raised some arguments around bias, around like, you know, what you see or not see when you conduct one of these searches. So there were some interesting points.
3: That was a clip of how the defense is trying to undermine the expert. Now, let's hear a bit of how the expert presented the technical side of the evidence of social media, in this case from Twitter, as Yvonne mentioned, so that the judge, Joanna Corner, a former UK High Court judge, now a judge at the International Criminal Court, can understand
2: his analysis. When Bellingcat downloaded uh, this video, uh, they ensured that a hash was produced of the video. Uh, this is a digital fingerprint. Um, which uh, can be then compared against other hashes of the same video at a later time and date uh, to see if any changes have taken place. And if if any changes have taken place within the video, then that hash, that fingerprint, would change. Um, Sorry, just just to get this straight. So you're looking at the stage at which it was downloaded by Bellingcat and whether any changes after its download had taken place? That is correct. Um, I should have made that clearer in my statement, um, for which I apologize. Uh, to be clear, as videos and images like this are posted on Twitter and Facebook and some other social, uh, some other services, such as social media, uh, the metadata and exif data is actually stripped uh, from them. Um, so therefore, the analysis that was carried out uh, for this, or in reference to paragraph 34, uh, was regarding the, the video presented to me by Bellingham.
3: So Yvonne, in the end, Dutch Corner said, yes, she would accept this evidence, but it was just a mock hearing. So what does this tell us? Uh, you know, how how uh, likely is it that this kind of evidence would then also be accepted in, for example, a uh, you know, domestic case or even an ICC case?
0: Yeah. So um, I would caveat this whole discussion with a massive disclaimer that this was a fictional exercise and, of course, not binding in any way on any court or or judge Um, And the second, I think, important caveat to note here is that even though the judge ultimately decided that the evidence could be admissible, admissibility is really only half the story. So it tells us nothing about the weight that it might be given in the case. And Judge Coroner, in her judgment, really emphasised that she would give the jury instructions and warnings highlighting the drawbacks of this kind of evidence and how they should treat it. In terms of general takeaways from Judge Coroner's ruling, which is, you know, so rich in legal analysis, and again, available online if anyone would like to listen to it, um, I think it was really on the knife edge on the question of admissibility. And Judge Coroner emphasised a number of factors that might not actually be present in a real-life case, including the existence of other corroborating evidence in the fictional scenario that we devised, I think one issue for me that I found really interesting was this whole issue of who is an expert um, because and because Bell and Cat and other groups who do this open source investigative work and who train others on it are always keen to point out like the people like you, Janet, who've done one of these courses, you know anyone can learn this stuff it's it's you know unlike a medical expert or something like that, there's no professional body, no established scientific community around this stuff, although you know, by now I think the methods, things like geolocation and chronolocation are are fairly well established. Um, so, but I thought that was a really interesting issue. And on Nick, Judge Corner really emphasised his level of experience, which not every open source investigator might have. So I think it's quite hard to draw solid answers on the you know what would happen in England and Wales question from this exercise, but I think it was really illuminating on the kinds of issues that we might expect to be raised.
3: One thing that strikes me is that this was an exercise, but we are very soon in the Netherlands probably going to see kind of a live, a real co- a real trial uh, when the MH17 trial, which uh, in June will go into uh, the substance of the case, uh, which relies enormously on Bellingcat reconstructions. And so that's something that we follow and that I follow for Reuters. But there you, you can really, we're got, probably going to really see played out in a Dutch court how this type of Bellingcat evidence gets assessed by judges and also how the defence will try to undermine it and we've seen a bit already in the preparatory uh, you know in the Netherlands there's a very long preparatory uh, uh, way before the trial starts and the defence was already saying you know who are these experts, we haven't talked to this person, what are the qualifications so I expect to see a lot of that
4: I wanted to bring uh, Carolina back in uh, on this to ask when you listen to something like that mock hearing, in Carolina do you think that in Europe it would, it would go differently in some way. Are judges in Europe already far more on top of this kind of evidence or do they treat it in a different way? I don't know, maybe even the civil law system treats things differently.
1: Um, yes so I think the judges in general are used to having the experts from the forensic institutes that can advise them on anything so there's this freedom but the expert knowledge um, is not necessarily used in all of the cases because the police inv- investigators can conduct their own geolocation and shadow analysis but yeah but when the investigators have some doubts as, as to the reliability and um, of- or the authenticity of a video of a photo they can send the report to the forensic institute and they receive a professional analysis and the judges are used to having a scale presented to them for example in Sweden and I think in the Netherlands it's a bit similar uh, with regard to the assessment of the reliability of one hypothesis um, in comparison to the other one so in Sweden uh, it's quite common to present a scale to the judges it's a scale from minus minus four being completely unreliable up to plus four that is completely uh, means mostly reliable and in this way the forensic institute experts uh, indicate to the judges whether this kind of evidence uh, you know has been edited or the, or whether it is of significant value to the court But the forensic institutes are also not the only entities um, that assist the courts in these domestic war crimes cases. Very often investigators also ask the assistance of private companies. So it is a completely different story. And these private companies can assist also with providing a report using specialized, for example, voice recognition software. I I know, for
3: instance, in the Dutch MH17 uh, case, a lot of the evidence, for example, um, especially with the whole convoy of the book Launch rocket that was allegedly used in the attack comes from Bellingcat, but I know it had to be kind of, all the investigation had to be redone by the Forensic Institute in order to present it to the judges, so this is also something that that we'll see. One thing that, that strikes me is that when I did the story about um, apps being used to record evidence uh, for war crimes, a lot of lawyers told me the problem is really uh, on the international level with judges. They are usually at least over fifty, uh, often over sixty, and in their seventies, and you have to explain all this kind of very new technical evidence. Is that a real a real problem with this kind of new evidence that the the judges need to be educated? Um, you know, we have Dutch uh, judges who say in court that they've never heard of Twitter or they don't know what it looks like. Or I think I've probably they've heard of it, but there was kind of like I've never seen it uh, kind of comments uh, in some cases that are. So so how how big of a problem is that? I think I'll ask Carolina first for the you have the European perspective and then we'll
1: move to Yvonne for the helicopter view. Um, so I am only basing my analysis on reading these quite short judgments in the civil uh, law tradition so there is no indication really of whether Twitter is something controversial but I think uh, really right now seeing also reference to Instagram posts, I think that it is becoming more and more common and I think judges are becoming more used to it, because otherwise uh, I think this would, th- there would be no convictions, I guess, but there are convictions on the basis of these posts. Yeah,
0: I mean, I, I hear this argument a lot, and I have to say, I feel kind of uncomfortable with it, this idea of like, fuddy juddy judges, they don't know how to use a computer. Um, In my experience, it's it's not true, you know, that judges do seem to uh, be able to grasp. And let's look at it. I mean, this stuff isn't hugely technically complex compared to some of the other. If you think about DNA evidence or forensic evidence, it's massively complicated and something that no one would ever come across in their daily lives. So just because um, a judge isn't particularly active on the Twitter sphere, <laughs> I suppose we wouldn't expect them to be. I don't think that means that they're not able to make these kinds of assessments. Um, of course, a little bit of training can never go amiss. But um, I, I don't know, I'd just be conscious of throwing the baby out of the bathwater if we take this approach that of oh, judges are so sort of out of touch and unable to understand this technical stuff. I think for me, one thing that I'm seeing pop up quite a lot, and this is both in the ICC and in the courts in England and Wales, and we saw it a little bit in, in Judge Coroner's judgment as well, is a real deep concern around um deep fakes and around fake news, and for me, I think this it will be really interesting to see how this develops um in in the future because as things stand, deep fakes are really hard to do well and to do convincingly, but I think the the impression of them or their perceived ubiquity has had this uh, impact on fact finders that it's like, well, can you really believe a video you see online? We've all seen this Tom Cruise TikTok uh, video, um, really convincing, but actually it took days and days and a professional impersonator and all sorts of things to make it that realistic fake. So I suppose, yeah, a concern for me would be that, yeah, we, we just get so overwhelmed with this concern about deep fakes that we just say, Well, we can't trust anything and we, we can't use this kind of evidence and I think that would be really problematic.
4: Is there also a danger of going maybe the other way with social media evidence that we become over reliant on it and we and it's like no trials that are just reliant on witnesses? are really relevant anymore? Because I I don't know, I think there are still some crimes out there where they don't actually have somebody holding a mobile phone up. I mean, it really does rely on people saying what they saw.
0: Are we becoming over-reliant on social media evidence? I think that's absolutely a big risk. And it's something um, myself and Dara uh, Murray and Alexa Koenig have written an article actually on this point exactly. Um, So we did interviews with investigators who were increasingly saying that just eyewitness testimony is is perceived as not being enough. It's like, hmm, but do you have a recording of this? Do you have a satellite image? You know, all this really fancy technical stuff. And often it just doesn't exist. You know, it's people who fled and um, they're telling you their story and it's corroborated. You've got other eyewitnesses who say they've seen this. But um, I think that's a, a really big risk. And um, it's in our article, we talk about you know, the risk that this new advent of social media evidence might silence voices that are typically already marginalised, actually, and and might perpetuate that silencing. When you talk about this kind of uh, o-
3: potentially over-reliance on social media evidence, for instance, if we look at the ICC, it's making a big push in in um trying to convict sexual and gender-based violence. Is that one of the areas that is almost certainly always led by witness testimony. It's very hard to get any kind of social media evidence from.
0: Well, it's really interesting that you raised this, Stephanie, because, again, this is something that we hear quite a lot. Oh, sexual and gender-based violence, it's hidden. People don't talk about it on social media and so forth. And um, uh, sorry to keep plugging our Journal of International Criminal Justice special issue, but there is an article in it by Alexa Koenig and Eulig Egan, who's another PhD student in Swansea, so I'm sorry. This feels like a blatant advertisement. Uh, it's but- fine to advertise
3: <laughs> if you're answering the questions that we're asking. It's just uh, I'm just feeling like I should have
0: read this entire uh, uh, issue back to back before not at I told you all. To all. Um, but so Alexa Koenig and Eulik Egan have just published this article on sexual and gender-based violence and the use of open-source evidence to um, investigate it. And they spoke to a lot of investigators and they found that actually, sometimes it's not that the evidence doesn't exist online, it's that people aren't looking in the right places or they're not looking the right way. So, um, victims or communities might use certain code words to explain what happened, and because Investigators can sometimes start with this presumption that, well, we're not going to find any evidence of sexual and gender-based violence online. They, that almost frames the investigation. And so um, Alexa and Yulik really make the point that investigators need to be alive to this, that it's about looking in the right places, using the right search terms, being aware of the local context, the language that might be used in... Um, and and really sort of opening one's eyes to the possibility that this evidence might actually be out there.
3: Yeah, so that we're talking about things of that obviously or potentially people are not going to film themselves raping somebody, but somebody might, there might be kind of aftermath things you can see, preparations you can see, uh, but also uh, hashtags and terms victims use that are not Hashtag I was raped, which you know a lot of people won't actually come and say, uh, but something like hashtag harassment or something like that, and that you or local language, and that you would need to know that.
0: Yeah, and actually, I think sometimes these incidents, unfortunately, are um, uh, recorded, and and uh, you know we've had domestic trials here in England and Wales where the perpetrator is recorded and shared with their friends uh, this evidence, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that it's certainly there are incidents where it's not. But, uh, you know, I think we we need to keep an open mind to this.
3: Now, I think this is also my misperception of social media evidence where I think like, oh, they they posted it on Facebook. But obviously, we've all heard of people recording things that they shouldn't have and then sharing it in a WhatsApp group or with their mates or something like that. And that is, of course, also social media evidence.
4: I just want to say thank you so so much to both of you for uh, opening up this this whole world um, to to tell us more about it. But before we let you go, we always like to ask a few uh, asymmetrical haircuts questions. Uh, start off with you, Carolina, which is, is there any question that we should have asked you that you haven't been asked that you'd like
3: to answer anyway? Some aspect of your research that is really interesting, but we didn't
1: get to or...
4: Give us, give us one bit of technology that you are fascinated by.
1: I think a very fascinating piece of technology used in these cases is facial recognition technology, uh, but also technology that is used to identify perpetrators even on the basis of the smallest details, such as birthmarks. Uh, so, for example, in Sweden, there was a perpetrator that was identified on the basis of a birthmark on his finger um, that he placed, I think, uh, accidentally in front of a camera. And just on the basis of that, uh, he was identified in court. So I think that's really interesting. Yvonne, from your side, uh, any other articles we didn't
3: ask about that you'd like to plug now?
0: Yeah, so in our article on biases, we have a section on overcoming bias and different methods that can be used um, to make sure that investigators don't fall into these traps of cognitive biases that can... Uh, apply. But there was a really good example from a few years ago, and you may have come across this video at uh, the Syrian hero boy. I don't know if you've seen this. So it's a video that purports to show there are all these gunshots firing and everything, and you see a little boy running, and from behind a car, he rescues what looks to be a sister, another a little girl, and he you know takes her through the crossfire, and it was shared widely online. You can hear some people speaking Arabic. You can see some oil cans with writing in Arabic on it. It's a desert kind of um, scenario. And people were saying, oh, look, this Syrian hero boy. Uh, But it turned out the video was actually um, recorded in Malta on the set of the the Gladiator film. And in kind of talking about this example, we talked about how an analysis of a, a piece of content has three facets. So you look at the um, the digital facets, so that might be any metadata, anything you can find in it. The content, so that's saying, well, look, you know, we can see it, it looks like a desert, it looks like it. Uh, we can hear voices speaking in Arabic. And that's what a lot of people did in concluding this. One investigator from the BBC, I think, said, we don't know where exactly this was taken, but we can be sure it was Syria. And, but the third, what they missed out on was crucially the third aspect, which is the source analysis. Where did this come from? And had they done that, they would have quickly realised, OK, something's a bit suspect here because it appeared on this YouTube channel that had no other videos ever before. And in the particular context of Syria, you know, we have these videographers who were really very active in creating thousands of videos and sharing them online. So, um, yeah, that was the... the a point that was missing. The other question
4: we always like to ask our guests on Asymmetrical Haircuts is, what have you been reading, listening to, or watching, maybe binge-watching because of the lockdown recently? So Yvonne first and then Carolina, what, what would you like to tell your audience about?
0: So uh, reading, I've just finished reading Girl, Woman, Another by uh, Bernardine Evaristo. Fantastic book, loved it. And uh, yeah, listening... I've been listening to this. Oh, I've also finished reading a book called We Are All Birds of Uganda by a young British author. But it's it's fantastic. It's There's parts that um are set in the uh, expulsion of Indian people from Uganda by Idi Amin. And so that's sort of the family history. But there's also a more contemporary story about being, um, yeah, a, a member of uh, a family of sort of second generation immigrants and some of the tensions there between what's expected of you uh and and your own ambitions so yeah I really enjoyed that um listening I've been listening to a really interesting podcast it's not related to international justice so please feel free to cut this out um but the podcast is called the Battersea Poltergeist have you heard about this and yeah so it's about uh an alleged haunting in the 1950s in this house in London And the lady who was at the centre of it, she was a 15-year-old at the time, is still alive. She's in her 80s and she's been interviewed as part of it. But for me, you know, as an evidence nut, (laughs) it's really interesting to see how the different evidence is evaluated, how you have things like corroborated testimony, but it still seems so unlikely that you wonder how did this take hold. So, yeah, I really enjoyed listening to that podcast.
4: What about you, Carolina? What have you been... uh... Uh, indulging yourself
1: in poltergeists? I'm mostly reading for my PhD, but a very interesting book that I'm reading at the moment is Kai Strat Matters Living in China Surveillance State. It's a really fascinating book about the use of a system of points and rewards and how technology is used to influence people's behavior in every single area of their lives, but also, uh, you know, very interesting techniques that are used by the state to highlight its presence. And a show that I'm watching as well is The Serpent on Netflix because I love everything about the 70s style and the show is really beautifully made with the 70s aesthetics and the story is also based on true events, which makes it even more interesting. Thanks very much for
3: these recommendations um, and thanks very much for uh, talking to us about these kind of um challenges but also possibilities with social media evidence and uh, I'm going to be having to deal with a lot of them in the MH17 case which I'm sure we'll talk more about in this podcast and uh, hopefully also get you back at some future date when there's a really big trial with uh, which is all about uh, Facebook evidence for example. Thank
0: you, bye. Thank you so much, bye. Thank you very much. Bye. This podcast was created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. It is published in partnership with justiceinfo.net. You can find show notes and additional blogs on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. It is recorded in The Hague Humanity Hub, home to a community of innovators in the field of peace, justice, development and humanitarian action. Music is by Audionautics.com, and the show is available on every major podcast service. So please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.